Turn, if you would, to the 21st chapter of the book of Matthew. If you remember, it actually was my goal to make it through the book of Matthew this year. We're not going to make it. This is, in fact, the 60th lesson on the book of Matthew. We started chapter 21 uh, a couple of weeks ago where Jesus rode into Jerusalem in a triumphant fashion as if the people were introducing, welcoming the king to the city of Jerusalem. Since then, it's been conflict and conflict, and we're going to have more conflict. It began when he drove the money changers out of the temple. If you remember, they were making money by selling sacrifices. They were making money by uh, converting the money from wherever you came from to the temple money, and they were making money both places. And he says, no, you've turned this into a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. I made the comment last week that I'm not sure I would say that Jesus is picking a fight with them, but I would definitely say he's not running away from it at this point in his ministry. By the end of the week, they are going to crucify him, and he knows why that's going to happen. They don't. Last week's lesson, they came to him. He was teaching at the temple, and the religious leaders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing this? Who gave you the right to do it? And he said, I'll ask you a question. You answer my question, I'll answer your question. And his question was, John the Baptist, was he from God or was he from man? And the religious leaders got into their little huddle and go, Okay, if we save from God... He's going to say, then why didn't you follow him? If we say he's from man, then the people are going to hate us because they really liked him. So they came to Jesus and they said, we don't know. And he said, then I won't answer your question. Now, we answered his question last week. What, where his authority comes from. As the creator, he has authority over all of creation. That would be us. Now... He doesn't answer their question, but he's going to turn and give them three parables explaining the situation. And we're going to see how far we can make it today into these three parables. But before we do that, we have to put in the same warning message that we put in each of the last three weeks. And we will continue to put in. I was reading an article this week. It was a book review of a book about Jimmy Carter. And just to put this in context, the article was written in a Jewish magazine. And the book talked about the fact that when Jimmy Carter became president, he had been a Sunday school teacher. And he continued to be a Sunday school teacher, which they said was probably a really bad idea. Because now you're teaching Sunday school with reporters in the room. Probably not a good thing. So the first Sunday, Jimmy Carter is teaching, and he's teaching about the triumphant entry. He's talking about the cleansing of the temple. And he's talking about the Jewish leaders rejecting him. And the Jewish community that was writing the article said, Oh no, 
He's on board with those people who think it's all the Jews' fault, the Jews have been rejected, and that's it. Because that's what has been used to excuse a lot of anti-Semitism throughout history. Well, let me remind you what we as a church believe. God made promises to Abraham, and those promises are still in place. Now, at some point, they're going to have to acknowledge the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and some will. We see in Romans chapter 11, Paul begins, What shall we say? Has God rejected the Jews? And he says, Heck no. That's a loose translation. No, he hasn't. Now, having said that, what we're going to see is that Jesus has rejected this group of Jewish leaders and said, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I am going to take the gospel. He doesn't use that word, but that's what we would call it. I'm going to take this gospel and give it to someone else. While you were supposed to be preparing the people's hearts for the Messiah, what you were really doing is turning their hearts away and they were not prepared. And we're not going to say, we are not going to say that Jesus is rejecting the Jewish community. He is going to reject the religious leaders who are not acknowledging him as the Messiah. So, let's pick it up in verse 28. Parable number one. Like all the parables, we will explain the story as it is, and then we will give the context. Now, it is interesting because in each of these, Jesus himself tells us what it means. In fact, he tells the audience. If you remember, when he started doing parables, he would do a parable, the people would be confused, he would turn to his disciples and say, this is what that parable means. In these parables, he's going to tell the crowd. This is what that parable means. What do you think? A man has two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? Simple question. I tell my two sons, I have two sons, I tell my two sons, I say one of them, I go out and work in the yard. And they go, no, I'm not going to do it. Not the best answer in the world. But eventually he changes his mind and he goes out and works in the yard. Good answer. The second one says, sure, dad, I'll do it. And then goes and plays video games. Now, which one did what was right? He asked the religious leaders. They said the first. The first son did what he was supposed to do, even though at first he was reluctant to do it. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Remember last week's lesson. He asked the question about John. 
Whose baptism was John following? They wouldn't answer. So he says, You are the son who said you would do what God told him to do. And when God's messenger, when God's prophet shows up, you rejected him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes said, sure, let us into the kingdom. And Jesus said, they're going to get in before you. Let's think for a moment how horrible this would be to these religious leaders. These religious leaders prided themselves on being above all those other people who are sinners of some sort. I don't associate with those kind of people. I would never talk to those kind of people. I am not one of those people. And then Jesus shows up and says, those people are getting into the kingdom in front of you. This was quite a condemnation. Remember our discussion several times about tax collectors. The tax collectors were hated. And I might add, Matthew, who's writing this, was a tax collector. He probably loved this sentence. The tax collectors worked for the Roman government they were the local interface. They were allowed to tax the people all they wanted. They owed the next guy up the food chain a certain amount of money. But they could collect more than that. Their goal was to get as much money as they could, but not so much money that the people actually revolted. Because if they actually revolted, that would cause trouble and you don't want that. Why were they... What gave them the authority to raise the money? They were sitting there in their tax booth, and next to them was a Roman soldier with a nice sword. That was their authority. They were hated. And Jesus tells them, they're getting into the kingdom first because they listened to the word when it was preached to them. Story number two. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took their, his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Simple question. Let's picture this again. The story first. I owned a piece of property. I did certain improvements to this piece of property to make it more profitable. I put a fence around it. I put a wine press in it. I built a tower. The tower is either for protection or for storage. I don't know, but he built a tower. He 
prepared the land so that it would be productive and profitable. Then I leased it to some people to actually work it. This is done very common, okay? I own land. I don't want to work it. I lease it to somebody else. My daughter's father-in-law, he has a full-time job, and then he works land, grows things, and he buys the right to grow stuff on a piece of property. And sometimes you either pay a fixed price or sometimes you split the fruit. So the owner of the land hired some people. They had agreed, I'll get this much fruit. You get that much fruit. Woohoo, the man left town. It was the season. The fruit was ready. The owner says, okay, I need to go get my cut. I need to go get my piece. This is pretty simple stuff. He sends a servant to gather his part of the crop, and they beat him up. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted all the stuff, right? I mean, I'm the one working the land. I'm doing the hard work. I should get everything. So they beat him up. So they send another servant. Well, beating up the last one didn't help. Let's just kill this one. So they beat him up. They kill him. They run him out of town. So the owner of the land says, okay, I will send my son to get my cut, to get what is owed me. And he sends his son. And they go, hmm, this is the guy that's going to inherit the land. If we kill him, there won't be anybody to inherit the land, so we'll get to keep it. Now, I might add, this is pretty stupid thinking, okay? But nobody ever said that in our sinful nature we think rationally, okay? We all know this. This is the kind of thinking that we do in our sin nature. So they took the son, they brought him out of the vineyard, they don't want to mess up the vineyard, and they killed him. So Jesus turns to the religious authorities and asks them the question, what do you think the owner of the land is going to do? Is he going to go, oh, woe is me, I'll stay over here? What is he going to do? They said to him, he will put those wretcheds to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits uh, in their seasons. He's going to come and he's going to kill them all. That's the answer that the religious leaders gave. And guess what? That's the right answer. Let's keep going. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He turns to them, the religious leaders. You are the tenants. You are working in the Lord's field. The Lord prepared this field. The Lord 
owns it. You were just given the responsibility to work it and you have not done it. It's going to be taken away from you. You had the opportunity to produce fruit. What was the fruit that they ought to have prepared, that they ought to have had ready? At that point, we could have a long discussion about, I don't know, the fruits of the Spirit, something like that. But I don't even think we need to get that technical. They had one job, and that was to prepare the people's hearts for the coming Messiah. Go back to the Old Testament. Prophecies about a coming Messiah. Prophecies about what He was going to do. Prophecies about somebody sitting on the throne of David. Prophecies that they knew by heart. And they had not done it. What had they been doing? They had been taking the fruit and using it for their own purposes. I mean, we saw this very clearly. We just mentioned it a while ago. The temple. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. The temple was supposed to be a place where you offered a sacrifice to remove the guilt of your sin. And the religious leaders were making money upon money upon money. They were milking the people for everything they could. They were using them. They were not ministering to them. It's like I said, you know, some poor guy shows up and he wants to offer a sacrifice and he's got a lamb, the best lamb that he has. And the religious leaders go, nope, that one's not good enough. You need one of our special lambs, which you can have for a... They should have said, sure, come on in, make the sacrifice. Do what is right in the eyes of God. But instead... They were milking the people for everything they could get from them. Now, the first observation is that we're dealing with a particular set of people at a particular set of time, and that's what the passage is really about. But let's remind ourselves, ourselves, that we also have been given, we have been given the responsibility to minister. We have been given the responsibility to share the gospel. We have been given the responsibility to bear fruit. But the fruit isn't ours, the fruit is God's, and we owe it to Him. When we use positions of authority to not do what God would have us to do, when we use positions of authority to benefit us and us alone, we are not doing what God has appointed us to do. Now, back to the historical context. It says that the owner had prepared the land. He had done these things to make the land profitable. What is it that God had done to the nation of Israel to prepare them? Do you remember what he says over in uh, Romans chapter 9? They, the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. They had been given all these opportunities. They had been given a covenant relationship with God 
The land had been prepared. The land was going to be fruitful. But they had rejected it. Backing up just a little bit more. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What is the stone that is rejected? Jesus. They're going to reject him. They're going to get rid of him. This is taken from Psalm 118. I would recommend you go read the entire psalm. It's a beautiful psalm about salvation. And the center of it is the fact that Jesus, the Messiah who was rejected, not the Messiah that was accepted, the Messiah that was rejected is going to be the cornerstone, that upon which the foundation of the church is built. And they had rejected it. Now, the religious leaders aren't dummies. Verse 45, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Duh. <laughs> and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, they held him to be a prophet. Why didn't they answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist? Because they were scared of the people. Why is it that at the end of this week, I mean, you know the whole story, right? Jesus is going to be in a garden at night, almost alone. He's got a couple of disciples, and then the rest of the disciples are over here. Why is it that that is going to be when they arrest him? Because they're scared to death of the people. Here he is in the middle of the crowd, but they're not about to arrest him there. But they're going to arrest him. At this point, they're trying to figure out how to get him away from the people. Parable number three. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And he again sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, so I have prepared, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. You're seeing a theme right here, right? The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good, bad, and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
For many are called, but few are chosen. That's an odd parable. Let's take it apart piece by piece. My son is getting married. I guess in today's age it would be the daughter, since the father of the daughter pays for everything, but my son is getting married. My son, who got married, by the way, married the most frugal girl in the world. I can't understand why my daughters didn't want the same kind of wedding. Anyway. (laughs) That's a whole different story. We're not going to go there. So... The man is preparing a wedding feast. His son is getting married. He invites all the right people. He sends out the invitations. He tells them to be ready. We're ready. The feast is ready. He sends the servants out. He says, tell everybody to come. And nobody comes. The wedding's empty. So he sends the servants out again and says, come. It's all ready, right now. And you know what? This guy goes off to his business. This guy goes off to his pleasure. This, they all have something else to do. So he sends out the servants. And they get tired of the servants. They say, servants, go away. And they beat some of them up. And they even kill some of the servants. But nobody comes. What is the man going to do? He's really ticked off. My son is getting married, and you have the audacity to turn down my invitation. Not only that, you kill my servants, and he goes and he kills every one of them and burns their cities. That seems like an odd way to respond to people not showing up at your wedding. We'll get into that in just a moment. Let's jump ahead. We know what this represents, right? The Messiah, the Son, is getting married. The Messiah is getting married, and God the Father invites the chosen people, the nation of Israel, to come. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet to be ready. Some of the prophets they just ignore. Some of the prophets they throw in pits in the ground. Some of the prophets they kill. And the people are not ready for the coming of the Messiah. I actually like this sentence. I mean, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. They just did their normal things. They were distracted by life. The Messiah is coming, and I've got a two o'clock meeting. The Messiah is coming, And I've got to go plant some grain in my field. Just everyday life distracted them from being prepared. And God said, this is a wedding you don't want to miss. We're not talking 
the wedding of my son or your son. We're talking the wedding where the bride and the groom come together at the end of the ages. We'll have a lot more about this in a couple of chapters. And the people said no. And so there was judgment. We've discussed before that we in our modern day do not like the idea of judgment. We love the idea of a loving God. We love the idea of salvation. We love the idea of a great party. We love the idea that God's just going to do something great for each of us all the time. But we're told, we are told that at the end of the day, there is going to be judgment. And having looked at the whole book of Matthew, having looked at the rest of the New Testament, we know that that judgment is going to be based on your acceptance or non-acceptance of the Son. They were invited. And they said no. And judgment came upon them. So, I've got all this food. I've got everything ready. And I have no wedding guest. None. So he says, okay, servants, go find me some bodies. Go out into the street and grab everybody you can. Who would that include? Well, back to our parable a while ago. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, all those riffraff, tell them to come to the party. So they do. They go out, they grab this guy, they grab that guy. Now, many commentaries will lead you to believe that since he was literally grabbing them off the street, that they would not have been dressed for the occasion. So he's sitting there inviting them, and he's standing at the door handing out wedding garments. Here, try this one. That'll fit you. Try this one. That'll fit you. And they're all coming into the feast. The servants have invited the people. The people are there. And then the master shows up. And he's walking through. Hi, how you doing? Welcome to the wedding. And he sees somebody that's still in his street clothes. And he looks at him and he says, why aren't you wearing your wedding garments? As I said, there are lots of commentaries who would have you believe that there was somebody at the door handing them out because they would not have been ready for it, right? He was dragging them off of the street. So this individual either snuck in the back door and didn't get one, or he chose not to put it on in the first place. And the master says, tie this guy up and throw him out. Not just throw him out side the wedding, but throw him into a place of torment. Why? For many are called but few are chosen. How many of you like that sentence? Don't raise your hand. Yes, go ahead. You like that sentence? (gasps) 
His observation is, is the wedding garment the righteousness of Christ? And the answer would be yes. What is this telling us? Let's start at the beginning. The Jewish community was invited. God had been preparing them. God had been preparing the field so that it would be productive. God had been telling them to work in that field. God had been preparing a wedding to welcome the Messiah, and they didn't respond. So he turned. He turned from the Jewish community. We probably should stop here, right? And make this, hmm? No? And make this comment about the fact that Jesus was not surprised, right, that the Jewish community rejected him. God's always had a plan. We need to remind ourselves that it wasn't like God showed up one day and go, Oh, they rejected me. I've got to go do something else. What should I do? No. God has this all figured out, right? Before the foundation. That was a long time ago. So he says, I'm going to invite everyone. I am going to invite everyone to come to the wedding feast. And he goes out into the streets and he invites everyone. So you go, oh, the Jews rejected, so everybody else gets in for free, right? Except not everybody that's in is in. Because some of them are not prepared to be at the wedding feast. What is required to be prepared to attend the wedding feast of the Messiah? The right garment. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The question was raised. What is the garment? What is it that prepares us to enter the wedding feast of the Son of God? And we know what that is. It's righteousness. Now, at this point, at this discussion of the parable, would they really understand this? Maybe not. Maybe not. By the time we get through, I don't know, the whole book of Romans, once we get through the rest of the epistles, we begin to see it very clearly. I can only enter the presence of a holy God if I am in fact holy. No show of hands. How many of you have ever sinned? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have sinned once this morning? In thought, action, deed, you have sinned. You cannot enter the presence of a holy God. Go ahead. There's lots of them.
you will never be saved. Right. His observation that there are people who don't believe they've ever sinned. Okay? They are foolish. In the good old book of Proverbs form of the word. And until you know that you have sinned, you don't know that you need a Savior. And if you don't know that you need a Savior, you will not respond to the gospel. What is the gospel? So, I'm a sinner. I cannot get in because I have sinned and I can only enter the wedding feast if I am righteous. So we see in the book of Romans, the righteousness of Christ is given to us so that we can enter the wedding feast. Yes, go ahead. They're wrong. <laughs> the scripture clearly tells us what God's standard is. Now, we also believe that that standard has been written on the human heart. Now, we have hardened our hearts. We have rejected that so that we no longer pay attention. And then, yes, we just pick up the standard that happens to be around us at one particular point in time, which is wrong. That's why we need to proclaim the righteousness of God so that people are aware. So that people are aware that they have sinned so that they will be prepared to receive the grace and they can put on the righteousness of God, of righteousness of Christ, to enter the presence of a holy God. Yes, sir. Yeah. Stealing and lying? I mean, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? He started listing off commandments. And he says, well, I did all that. Now, I'll be kind and say that maybe he had in deed. Now, if you go to the Sermon on the Mount and you see that Jesus turned it into a condition of the heart, we're all in trouble. But Jesus then turned to him and said, sell everything you have because his wealth was his idol and his idol was what he worshiped more than he worshiped God. So, he has rejected the wedding guest. He has brought in a new set of wedding guests, which by the way, is us. Are us? Us. But you know what? I don't want to pop anybody's bubble. Christ Chapel is a big church. There's lots of people here. They come because they like the music. They come because they like the preacher. They come because it's just something to do. They come because they like to meet people. I mean, we like people, right? They come because they want to learn about God. Woohoo. But not everybody that's here is clothed in the righteousness of God. We understand that, right? 
There are people who have snuck into the wedding feast who don't belong at the wedding feast. Tares among the wheat. We saw that in another parable. And at the end of the day, God's going to see you're not wearing the right clothes to be at this wedding. And they are going to receive judgment just like the Jewish community who had rejected him received judgment. Because not everybody, not everybody that walks through these doors has in fact been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What is the warning for us here? Well, let's start with the blessing. The blessing is that we've been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That we have been invited to the wedding feast of the Messiah. We have been invited. The warning is don't think that just because you walk in the door, you're in. Your heart has to be prepared. Your sin has to be dealt with. So, we had three parables answering the question that Jesus didn't want to answer when he was asked by the religious leaders. All having a common theme, and that is that God has rejected, no, they have rejected, and God has turned to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the engineers, the bakers, the candlestick makers, and all of us. I mean, it's a great picture. It's a great picture of the promise that God has given us. What does this teach us? We're invited to the party. But it also warns us that if we reject if we reject and do not do what God has asked us to do. If you are in a position of authority, and you probably are at some level, authority over your family, authority over a business, authority at some level of community or in the church itself, you've been given a responsibility. And that responsibility does help people prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. You're not in it for your own edification. The leaders of the religious community here were doing their own thing for their own good. And Jesus said, I'm taking it away from you and I'm giving it to somebody else. For us, it's a great blessing and it is a great curse depending on which side you're on. Because at the end of the day, there's going to be judgment. We may not like it. We may not want to teach about it. We may not want to preach about it. But just because we don't teach about it or preach about it or even want to think about it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. At the end of the day, God's will is going to be done. And he is going to send Jesus back to earth and his bride is going to be ready 
or not. Well, his bride's going to be ready. But there are lots of those who think they're in and they're going to find out they're not. What should those people do? They should examine their hearts to see if, in fact, they are ready. The scripture tells us to do that. It shows the fruit that we're supposed to be demonstrating. Now, just to make sure we don't fall off another cliff, don't think that the fruit is what's going to save you. The fact that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ is by the gracious grace of God alone. These people came to this wedding feast not because of anything they had done. They were just walking down the street and a servant came and said, hey, you want a really good party? Here's the cloak. That's us. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. That's the message. And that's the message we cannot afford to reject. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have allowed us, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, to attend the wedding feast. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.